0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you a presentation by Michael Hawley, author of the books The Ripper's Haunts, and the upcoming Jack the Ripper suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, joined by author and researcher Brian Young, who were invited to The Crow Club, which is a social club there in Buffalo, New York, for a special Halloween talk to its members on Jack the Ripper in western New York. The connection being the aforementioned Doctor Francis Tumblety, and so let's turn it over to the Crow Club in Buffalo, New York, introducing Michael Holly and Brian Young. Okay,
1: so this was uh, this is kind of a, a little bit of a labor of love for me. Uh, as Joe mentioned, we're all we're all cigar guys here. We, it's it's what. Uh, the commonality between most of us, and uh, I, I started to see a couple of guys at some of the events. I put on a bunch of different events for different clubs that I belong to, and I, I kept seeing these two guys here. And uh, I'm like, who are these biker-looking guys? You know, they're, they're, they're sort of shady-looking. I don't know. They're, they're a little scary. Then I got to know them, and, <laughs> and uh, what, a, what a joy it's been! Because they are the most, uh, the most unexpected, uh, and the most erudite. Uh, are being, they're, they're knowledgeable in uh, so many different areas that I, I just sit back and, and, and wonder sometimes. And then, just just uh, out of the blue, somebody mentioned, oh, well, you know, you know Brian Young, he's, he's, he's sort of an expert on, on Jack the Ripper. I'm like, really? And they're like, come on. And they're like, oh, no, he, he researched a book, and he's a historian. So we started talking about it, and... And I could immediately sense the passion uh, in these guys. Their, their knowledge is a mile wide and 10 miles deep. So I, I had to sort of rein them in a little bit, and I'm like, listen, 101 level, don't, don't get in too deep, because the the amount of, everything is a rabbit hole that they go down. So I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, what, what we really need is, and they said, yeah, that, that's something that the community has been wanting. So we're actually going to record this tonight for a podcast that's going to go on to the um, Onto their website, Um, and this is going to be the one on one class for everybody. So it's my pleasure. I'm going to introduce uh, Brian Young, and then he's going to introduce my colleagues. So take a look. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Kevin. It's uh, it's great to be here. Um,
2: Very surprised there's this many people who want to. Brave a Buffalo cold, dreary evening to talk about a serial killer from 130 years ago. Um, I would like to say also we are being recorded for an international podcast that is going out literally all over the world. I mean, faraway places like you know Australia, where my friend Jeff is going to be tuning in, and uh, Wales for uh, my friend Lauren will be tuning in, and faraway places like Topeka, Kansas. We're actually the show is run out of. Uh, Jonathan runs the show. It's called uh, Rivercast. It's available on iTunes, um, available through Facebook.org, which is a research site for Jack the River. This, of course, is the poster you all saw coming in. I'm the ugly guy on the poster there. Mike is the good looking guy on the poster there. Uh, a little bit about us. Uh, I've been researching and writing about the Jack the Ripper case for 30 years. As sick as that sounds. I was 14 years old, the 100th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper Killers. And at 14 years old, when something interests you, you just kind of grab onto it and never let go. 30 years later, I'm standing in the Crow Club talking about Jack the Ripper for you. Um, I've written articles for Ripperologist magazine, the White Chapel Society Journal, uh, tons of online blogs, I've appeared on several podcasts uh, debating people as part of a roundtable uh, with Michael, who is uh, the author that we're all here to see. Um, and there's Michael, who's not only a writer, not only the, uh, he's a world-renowned lecturer. He just got back from uh, Liverpool, England, doing a Jack the Ripper conference. And immediately after that was flown back to Dublin, Ireland, to record an episode for the Travel Channel's Legend Hunter. Which will be March. March of 2018. You should all tune in. The first episode of the show will be featuring Mike Hall. Right. Yes. It's, it's going to go to its head. Stop. This is uh, one of Mike's books. Uh, his latest book, but there is a newer one coming out. Well,
3: oh, this is the newer one. This is Th- the newer this one. Is not out. Uh, the other one.
2: Yeah, this one comes out in November or February. Or February. <laughs> <laughs> Any writers in the room? Dan, you know what that's like. This is uh, based primarily on the research of the Western New York connection with Jack the Ripper, which we'll be getting into much deeper, much later in the evening. So let's actually get into the case itself now. How many people here actually know who or what Jack the Ripper was? Okay, a few hands. In the autumn of 1888, in the city of London, there was a series of murders that became incredibly, incredibly widely recorded through the media. Um, yellow journalism was taking off at the time. Penny newspapers, everybody could afford them. It just dominated headlines on both sides of the Atlantic. Everybody in the world knew about this killer named Jack the Ripper. Unfortunately, as time went on, he's become more pop culture icon and folklore. There's been hundreds of movies based on the Ripper killings, none of which are historically accurate. Some of the better ones, time after time, very realistic. H.G. Wells creates a real-time machine. Jack the Ripper steals it. He has to come to San Francisco to get the Ripper. Totally believable. (laughs) Alfred Hitchcock, one of his earliest films, was The Lodger, based on the Ripper legend. Pandora's Box, the uh, very famous silent film with Louise Brooks featured Jack the Ripper in the final scene. Look at that, more movies. You got Sherlock Holmes fighting the Ripper and Murder by Decree. Christopher Plummer, great movie, I really recommend it. Even Ivan Drago fought Jack the Ripper. Actually, he fought Jill the Ripper, but didn't kill her like Apollo. Television. Ripper Street was a very successful series that just ended on the BBC. But it goes way back to episodes of The Veil with Boris Karloff, uh uh, show that he hosted, uh very Twilight Zone one, episodes of The Twilight Zone. Whitechapel was a series that was, what, two, three years ago, Mike? Yeah, where um, a modern-day copycat killer was being tracked down by, I believe, someone who led a Jack the Ripper tour. Even Captain Kirk (laughs) fought the river. Comic books were not immune to the Ripper, too. Batman fought the Ripper. In Masters of Kung Fu, Fu Manchu mysteriously knew who the Ripper was and was letting him kill people. Music was never immune. Spinal Tap, if anybody remembers, had their rock opera, Saucy Jack. Bob Dylan wrote songs about the Ripper. Morrissey, when he wasn't making us all want to slit our own wrists, was writing about Jack the Ripper. Judas Priest, believe it or not, Ripper. Screaming Lord Such, Jack the Ripper. The London, Ontario minor league baseball club decided as a PR move to name their team the Rippers. Using a logo of a top-headed cloak wearing Jack the Ripper with a baseball bat. Didn't go over so well with the city council. As a matter of fact, uh, a lot of people have used the name to uh, profit in very bizarre ways. In Spitalfields, London now, there's a barber shop where the killings were called Jack the Clippers.
4: (laughs) Which is really, really
2: quite faceless. But, the reality isn't funny, it isn't charming, it isn't cute. There was some pretty serious stuff going on here. Um, In 1888, the East Side of London was actually one of the poorest sections in the entire world. There were up to eight thousand homeless people living in just the East End of London alone. Um, half of all children in that area died before the age of five. And one in sixteen women who lived there were selling themselves just to have enough money to pay a night's rent, or to get a loaf of bread, or usually to buy gin with it. So when we say prostitutes then, that image of the streetwalkers all dolled up looking for customers, this isn't what it was. This is London at the time. Greatest, greatest metropolis in the planet. And yet the East End was an absolute poverty. It was slums upon slums upon slums. The worst ghettos you can imagine were nothing compared to what the East End of London at the time was. It was um, immigrants from around Europe were moving to London and were stuck in this rat-infested, vermin-ridden, 30-people-to-one-room housing, no work, no food, lots of prostitutes, though. So here on the map, I'm going to actually gonna get a little closer to it, shows you the locations of the actual five killings that are recognized as the Ripper Slaves. It's all in this area right here, all in the center of the East End of London. The first one of the five that most historians believe are attributed to Jack was Polly Nichols. Now, uh, Polly was killed on August 31st, 1888. She was 43 years old at the time of her death. Approximately 1.20 in the morning, she was asked to leave her kitchen of her Doss house. She didn't have any rent money. She actually said to the man kicking her out, Never mind, I'll soon get my Doss money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got. Apparently that's all it took to get picked up. 3.45, Charles Cross and Robert Paul discovered her body, just a half hour before that, the police had patrolled the area and saw nothing. Well, they're on Buck's Row. They're trying to get to work in the morning, and they don't want to be late. So, like anybody who finds a dead body says, Eh, we'll get to work, and if we see a cop on the way, we'll tell them. They see a cop. They tell them, Hey, there's a dead woman over there. Of course, the cops don't detain them. They call the police. They call the doctor. At 3.50 a.m., she's pronounced dead. They discovered that her neck was slipped twice get her back and discover she had severe incisions to her abdomen where did my clicker go oh there it is the next of the five and i'm just being really briefer right? i don't want to go too in depth like i said we're doing a one-on-one if anybody has any questions and wants further explanations wants more info bring it to us at the end and we'll be happy to go into anything for you Okay. Annie Chapman on September 8th, 1888. She's 47 years old at the time of her killing. 1.35 in the morning. Of course, she doesn't have the money. She's got to go out and earn it. 5.30 a.m., another woman, Elizabeth Long, sees her with a man up against a fence at 29 Hanbury Street. He actually hears the man say, will you? She says, yes. Then a little before 6 a.m., a man named John Davis discovers the dead body in the backyard. Again, her throat was slit all the way down to the bone. This time, her abdomen was slit open. Her intestines were severed and lifted out of the body, placed over her shoulder. Her uterus, the upper portion of her vagina, and two-thirds of her bladder were removed and missing. Not a pleasant way to go. And then we go on to the night of night that's known as the double event. Uh, it's September 30th, 1888. Elizabeth strides, 45-year-old woman. It's 1245. Israel Schwartz sees a man stop and speak to a woman in the gateway. He, the guy's trying to pull her into the street. He throws her down, She screamed. And he's crossing the street. He sees a second man lighting a pipe. The man who threw the woman down turns and sees Israel Schwartz and screams Lipsky at him, which is um, an anti-Jewish slang term from the time. Schwartz figures, I better get out of here. He leaves. The other guy who lit the pipe seems to be following him. He takes off. He runs away. 1 a.m., a man named Louis Deemschutz pulls his cart and pony into the alley where she was. The pony stopped when wouldn't go any further. He doesn't know what the hell's going on, so he gets out, feels around. It's pitch black out. He feels a body. He figures it's one of the drunks that are passed out. He goes inside the club, comes out with two other guys, and they find out, no, she's dead, and her throat's been slit. No other injuries to the body. Some people don't think this was Jack. Other people believe, as he pulled in with the cart, Jack was actually killing her. The pony startled. He got scared, ran away. He runs all the way to Mitre Square, where he meets Catherine Eddowes. you have seen on the map how close the locations are. Uh, we walked it when we were in London. It's like a ten-minute walk between the two locations. Catherine's a 46-year-old woman. She didn't get off as easy as Liz. Uh, at 1.45, P.C. Edward Watkins discovered Edna's body in Minor Square. This time, her throat was cut. Her intestines were drawn out and thrown over her right shoulder. A piece of those intestines were cut away and placed between the body and the left arm. Her face was severely mutilated this time. He was slicing her eyelids and her cheekbone. Cut the end of her nose off. He stabbed at her liver repeatedly. And removed a kidney. Also missing. Bringing us to what most people think was the last of the Ripper's killings. Mary Jane Kelly. Mary Jane Kelly was a very special case, unlike the other ones that were old, drunk, prostitutes. She was 25 years old, approximately. There's no known photographs of her, just these renderings. There are reports that say she was beautiful and blonde, and other reports that say she was kind of a chubby little girl that has just kept to herself. We don't know for sure. We don't know if her name was Mary Kelly. That was a common name prostitutes used when they were arrested as a fake name at the time. Well, Mary Kelly actually had a room. She didn't have to go out and get her doss money. And she lived at the killer's court. So what the killer did with her was indoors. He had plenty of time to do with, with her whatever he wanted. He didn't have to worry about being caught. He didn't have to worry about the police coming after him. He was inside and he did some pretty nasty stuff. Um, did you add the picture of this on there, Mike? At the end. At the end. I don't want to go into it. Mary's body is pretty brutal. For those who don't want to see that or hear about that, we're going to give you plenty of time to leave before the presentation ends. If you stick around to the end as an extra added bonus, you get the really gory stuff. Whoa. One slide. One slide with a lot of descriptions. So this leads us into, these are the five canonical victims. These are the ones that most historians and experts agree are attributed to Jack. There are however, well that's Mitre Square now, and how it was, this whole area's been rebuilt when the Olympics went into London, it's beautiful now. These are other victims that could possibly have been ripper killings. Um, As you can see, people disagree between 12, between 20, between 5, between 3. We'll stick to the canonical 5 for this part of the lecture just because that's the general consensus. Now the name Jack the Ripper is what everybody remembers. That actually came from a letter that was sent by someone claiming to be the killer. And it was September 27th, 1888, when a letter was received by the Central News Agency, signed Jack the Ripper. He wrote, Dear Boss, I keep hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I get buckled. Grand work, the last job. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with. But it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red egg is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. ha. The next job, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers (coughs) just for jolly. Wouldn't you? Keep this letter back until I do a bit more work. Then give it out straight. My knife is so sharp, and I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. The chances that this was actually written by the killer are pretty slim to none. Most people think it was a journalist at the time, wrote it, sent it to the news agency to create a story. But what he did is create the greatest name ever given to a serial killer that's lasted 130 years. There were other letters just as famous, one known as the From Hell letter, which is where the Johnny Depp film gets its name, and that was simply written to George Lusk, who was the chairman of the vigilance committee. A bunch of citizens got together and said, the police won't catch him, so we'll catch this guy. Lusk gets a letter one day that just says, From Hell, Mr. Lusk, Sir. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it free with the, the other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if only you wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. Now the likelihood that that was written by the Ripper, most people don't believe. The fact that he did send a kidney right after a kidney was removed from someone, they claim the kidney had... Signs of Bright's disease, which so did the victim. Bright's disease is a disease of the kidney from alcoholism, so pretty much everybody in the East End would have had Bright's disease. What lends credibility to that is it wasn't sent to the police, it wasn't sent to the news. It was sent to this loudmouth who was coming after him. And he didn't sign a Jack the Ripper. Suspects This is Mike's favorite part. There have actually been 500 named suspects in the Jack the Ripper Killer. Some of the most plausible ones, people that we know were in the area at the time, people that had the capability of being there, and then there's ones that make no sense, like Lewis Carroll, the author, where the theory is he had anagrams in his books, and he had confessed to being the killer through these little stories and poems in his books. Uh, My favorite theory was that the elephant man was the killer because, of course, he would never have been recognized walking the streets. The most... Monica John Druitt, whose picture is circled, is considered by some to be a leading suspect, as is a man named Aaron Kisminski. And Chapman up there, these were all people that the police named as suspects at the time. That's the only reason people want to give them credibility now. The police named them at the time. Of course, there are reports where another hundred names appear in lists, but we'll ignore that. The study of this case started pretty much immediately after it happened. It was never solved. To this day, no one knows who it was except Mike. <laughs> And there's been literally hundreds of books written on the investigation of the case that range from the ridiculous to the sublime. They're wonderful. Written by the Mount Rushmore of Ripperologists Stuart Evans, Paul Begg, Keith Skinner, and Martin Fido. And then down there in the corner looking up is Don Rumbleau, who I like to include Don because Don wrote some very important stuff, but he's just not up there with them. These are the guys that wrote the books that really kept the case alive and kept them going. Um, Stuart Evans, Scotland Yard Investigates, the First American Serial Killer, Letters from Hell, which he wrote with Keith Skinner. Paul Begg wrote a book called The Facts, The Definitive History, CSI Whitechapel. Keith Skinner was a researcher and helped with the ultimate Jack the Ripper companion and what most people consider the Bible of Ripperology, Jack the Ripper A to Z, written by... Paul Begg, Keith Skinner, and Martin Fido. You also got to give credit to Stephen Knight. I don't like to, in 1978, wrote a book called The Final Solution, which brought so many people into the case because he claimed it was a royal conspiracy committed by the royal family and the royal physicians and Walter well, Sickert the Painter and incredibly convoluted, apparently... Prince Edward Albert had a baby with a Catholic. No, no. So the Queen had to kill everybody. Except the mother of the child. They committed her, let her live. But all the women she knew had to be slaughtered secretly by these people. And then the Masons are involved. It's just a mess. And now, there's a Western New York connection. That for many years was laughed at by people in the community. Until Michael Hawley came along. And he was not researching the Ripper. He did not enter into this going after Jack or trying to find him. It was all about this man Francis Tumblety from Rochester, New York. Mike stumbled on some information that really changed the game in the way this case is researched. The respectability of it. And the respect Mike is getting from those people on the Mount Rushmore is unbelievable. He, uh, he's been asked by all of them to assist with their research. He's been sharing research with them. They've been sharing with him and my and, colleague. And him, too. And, and me, but we're not selling my book. <laughs> and uh, he's really brought a character that most people have written off back to life to the point where a lot of leading experts are leaning towards Michael Suspect as quite possibly Jack the Ripper. So I'm going to bring Mike up to discuss the life, the legend of Francis Tumblety, possible Jack the Ripper. Thank you,
5: Brian. Yeah, it was nice. The uh, the book, uh, the Ripper's Haunts. Uh, what happened really? Stuart Evans was the one that uh, rediscovered Francis Tumblety with a letter that I'm going to talk about about 1993. Uh, Here's uh, Brian and I. We visited uh, this year the the grave, family grave of uh, Francis Tumbledy and about about five years prior to this, or six, two thousand nine, that person behind you back there, uh, my brother-in-law Nick and I, we we visited that. we YouTubed it. So, uh, but um, so this guy, this is where he's buried in Rochester, New York, in the Church of Holy Sepulchre, and uh, so. Here is Francis Tumbledee. Here is the, uh, the, the best photograph of him. If you Google Francis Tumbledee, you'll see a guy in a helmet. That's not him. And that's one of the things that I kind of surprised people this last year is that's not him. That was I mean, he, Tumbledee had someone, a younger man take a picture, and, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a double. So, but what happened was in 1992, Stuart Evans... He, now he'd been doing uh, research for 50 years, and he's a retired police officer, but what happened was, even back then, he he had been studying, you know, researching for 30 years, and so someone came to him and said, hey, I've got some uh, Ripper letters, or not uh, letters from the Ripper, but just Ripper connected letters. So Stuart Evans grabbed it. He thought it was gonna be nothing, but lo and behold, it was the chief inspector Secret special branch of Scotland Yard. You so know, like if you who's watched that movie From Hell, just one or a couple people. But like if you see that, they always have special branches of bad guys. They're kind of like the Gestapo people, where they you know, keep an eye on all the other police officers. But what it was is they're basically the CIA version of Scotland Yard, and he was the man in the know of everything. So he wasn't directly involved with the Ripper investigation, but he was indirectly. He was always in. And so what happened was is, 1888 were the murders, and around in 1913, a famous journalist at the time, this guy named Sims, who had already retired, he was still in, interested in who Jack the Ripper was. He was convinced of a different suspect, Druid, and because he has some connections with Scotland Yard. So he decided to send a letter to Chief Inspector Littlechild. And Littlechild and said, I don't know about that Dr. D guy, but Dr. T, Tumble D, uh, and he talked about who Tumbley was. He says he's a very likely suspect. Here is the chief inspector Scott, uh, of special branch saying he's a very likely suspect and that he had this bitter hatred of women. And so that shocked Stuart Evans because Stuart Evans had never heard of Francis Tumbley. Basically, Scotland Yard did a great job burying him, but there were some other reasons for that as well. So then, in that same letter, is a little child named the possible reporters that started that name, Jack the Ripper as well. So that was a big thing too. So that little child letter is a serious, I mean, it's a serious document. So then for the next two years, he researched and wrote a book out in 1995 called The Lodger. And it, it did really well, but it put uh, Francis Tumbley right on, you know, uh, you know, here's, everyone knows Stuart Evans. So, but what happened is Stuart Evans stopped researching Tumbley in 95 and others research. And basically it was limited evidence. So they ripped it apart. And so by the time I got around with 2009 that most experts really considered him a minimal suspect. I mean two years ago where's Brian? Is he from? He okay. He's at the Oh okay. He's had so but he uh, when I first spoke with him and kind of discussed what I had found he was of the same idea that Tumbley was not insignificant. So then what I did was I just did my own style of research, and I just kept on finding new stuff. And so, and here's the letter, uh, what it says, what little child it said. He goes, I, closer there so I can read it. I never heard of a Dr. D in connection with the Whitechapel murders, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one, was a Doctor D, and then sounds much like D. He was an American quack named Tumblety, and was at one time a frequent visitor. So it continues, and at at the bottom here he says, or in the middle it says, "But his feelings towards women were remarkable and bitter, and in the extreme of fact, on record." Earlier there he talks about this large dossier that Tumblety had. Lots of lots of experts still today think that that dossier was part of Special Branch. I'm convinced it was actually in the uh, in, Investigative Department. But in this case, and then at the very bottom, but it is certain that from this time the Ripper murder came to an end. What happened was, dumbledy nobody saw the murders. And so when uh, he was arrested, let me uh, give you, I'll, I'll continue with that when I get to that. And it says, in this case, one of the things that we, I discovered was that there were actually three Scotland Yard inspectors that considered TumbleDee one of the key suspects at the peak of the murders. There are no other suspects that have named by three of these. Here's Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson, who was in charge of the investigation. He contacted City of Police, uh, detect, uh, Chiefs of Police, asking for more information on this guy. What happened was when uh, TumbleDee was arrested on suspicion on the street, like a whole bunch of other people, if you were a, a male single, or as a lone male, not in groups, but a lone male, if you were talking to a a casual prostitute, you were likely going to be arrested on suspicion, because they they were arresting everybody at the time. And so, then when uh, they found out who he was, as they sent uh, a cable to headquarters, Scotland Yard, he had this huge file on his extreme hatred of women, and uh, he was an American doctor, because there was a possibility that because Jack Ripper eviscerated really fast, that he had anatomical knowledge, and then that one Jack Ripper letter has a lot of Americanisms in it, and so they were thinking possibly maybe an American doctor, and there were some other theories about that. So, and also uh, a uh, there was witness eyewitness testimony of a man in a small hat, which that's what he was wearing. So they were they they took him seriously, but nobody saw the murders, so they didn't have any hard evidence on him. But what they did have is he had four letters in his pocket from young men. He was, he was gay. So, and, uh, that act was illegal back then. It was called gross indecency. So they said, well, they thought they were, they're going to get him off the streets. So they arrested him for gross indecency. Well, he eventually sneaked away out of the country because that was a misdemeanor offense. Post bail and sneaked out and murder stopped. But, and this is, uh, kind of the, the, at the time what happened. So uh, he was arrested. It was basically his second arrest. He was initially arrested on suspicion, but then he was taken into custody for the gross indecency November 7th. But he always had expensive jewelry in one pocket, uh, diamonds, and he had uh, thousands of dollars of today's value of cash in the other pocket, never to mix. And so he could easily have posted bail right then, and then November 9th is the Kelly murder. While some experts don't, Mary Kelly was a ripper victim, Tumbley was still free to have done something. So what happened was is uh, he had his remand hearing then, and uh, which remand means that uh, are we going to keep him in jail or are we going to allow him to um, post bail, and they allowed that because it was a misdemeanor offense. And then his committal hearing was November 14th. So November, November 14th, they committed him to Central Criminal Court, which is, this is a magistrate's court, police magistrate's court, so what happened was, is he posted bail on November 16th here, and he was free, and by November 19th, the grand jury brought back a true bill, which means they were convinced he was guilty, basically, because they were going to send it out, and that's right when he's, he took off. Uh, we have evidence of him taking money from his New York bank, and on November 20th, and by November, so usually he went Took went to New York City back and forth from Liverpool because he had a sister that lived there, and so. But this time he sneaked across to the Channel, and uh, and um, Chief Inspector Littlechild said the, the 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 last time he was seen, or the first time he was seen outside of England was at Boulogne. The last time he was seen was right here, uh, the ship L'Argentini or whatever that is. It took off on November 24th at noon and he was on board that ship and made it back to America December 2nd. But now he's in America and it was a misdemeanor charge so it's not extraditable. So he didn't go to Canada because they would have extradited him back because Canada was still kind of he was still they were still part of the British Empire Canada, even though they're a sovereign nation, yet the United States could not be extradited. And the murder stopped. So um, one of the things here is an eyewitness account. One of the questions is, Is does Tumbley fit any of the eyewitness accounts? And here's one right here, right after the Kelly murder, that we have a tall, well-dressed man, and uh, it's a reported in that spot here. So he does fit one of those. There's not others, but again, nobody saw the murders. So there are no eyewitness accounts of the murders. So even the H.H. H. Holmes uh, History Channel thing, here they, they made a composite of Jack the Ripper by 15 eyewitness testimonies. I don't get that when nobody saw the Ripper murders. How can you have an eyewitness testimony? Now they have eyewitness testimonies of what happened maybe just a little bit before, a little bit after. But then, I mean, the features was almost exactly like H.H. H. Holmes. Well, none of the testimonies had facial features on there. But still, um, Scotland Yard took him seriously even after that murder. So. Uh, in this case, right here, it shows one of the other reasons why they uh, took him seriously is because he actually had a uterus collection during the Civil War. Who knows? Yeah, who does? Yeah. Well, there was a reason why he had one. He actually had an anatomical collection. He was, he came to America during the, the Irish potato famine with his family, and at 17, by 20, he was working for an alternative doctor, two types, a French cures doctor, a French <laughs> disease doctor, sexual disease doctor, and then an Indian herb doctor. And then in a few years later, Tumbledy, 1856, was on his own as this uh, Indian herb doctor claimed to cure all. By 1860, in uh, Toronto, he uh, was already a millionaire. He was so good at it in today's value. So he uh, really could exploit the best. And, uh, what happened was, is by 1860, he had to come back from Canada to America because of a manslaughter charge. But 1861 is when the Civil War began. So what happened was, in New York's uh, what, uh, uh, a man named Colonel Dunham, who was a colonel at the time, but he also had a little reputation of being a reptile journalist just because he was a spy. But in this case, uh, 1880, December 1st, 1888, he recalled in the newspaper, Civil War experience where Tumbledee invited all of the general's officers to a medical illustrated lecture. And this fits perfectly with Tumbley what he was trying to do. Tumbledee always considers himself a medical doctor, even though he never went to medical school. He was an Indian alternative doctor. But he claimed he was a surgeon as well. And maybe something he did back, you know, in or in he would say in Philadelphia, or you kind of switch stories, but he really didn't have a diploma. So what he did was, if he could have the U.S. Army uh, hire him as a surgeon, he just bypassed the medical diploma. The U.S. military is just considered a surgeon, so he really wanted that. And uh, so what he did was, he had this illustrated lecture, and he showed, all at that time, all surgeons, credible surgeons, had their own anatomical specimens to show that they're, they're skilled at creating these specimens. So Tumpley did the same thing, and what Colonel Dunham remembered was his favorite part was the collection of uterus specimens, and, and also his extreme hatred of women. And uh, in this case, this right here, this report talks a little bit about there There was a, some theories going on about this, and so Tumpley's name popped up. So here it is, the 1861 where he had the uterus collection, and this is Colonel Dunn talking about this at a late dinner symposium. Uh, he gave an illustrated lecture and showed his museum with his anatomical specimens, and especially the in red here, the maestries of every class of women. So here it is, this man is a suspect, and he had a collection of uterus specimens. And we know Jack DeRipper took uh, uterus from two different uh, victims. And right here we have, uh, uh, I was just talking about the reason why he would, because he wanted to bypass the medical diploma as best he could, so if he could get the Army to consider him a surgeon, he just did it. So, further evidence is, here's a Buffalo connection right here. 1863, two years later, he is now in Buffalo with none other, none other than John Wilkes Booth, who was playing at the theater. So he's hanging out with John Wills Booth, and, but this reporter was talking about Tumbley giving lectures with thespian emphasis. So it shows evidence that he certainly was giving lectures during the uh, during the Civil War. And then just a month before the event that Dunham talks about, Tumbley's in New York City, and this reporter's complaining about these pictures of, uh, of anatomical pictures that Tumbley had at his office. And when you looked at any kind of uh, other reports later, Tumbley never had pictures of anatomical specimens except at this very moment. So you can see Tumbley was already trying to plan on uh, convincing the, uh, the army. Well, it wasn't just that. is connected to all three organs that were taken by Jack the Ripper. So we have the uterus, in January of 1888, now the River Murders were 1888, fall of 1888, January of 1888, he was reported by a, new, uh, a Toronto Globe reporter saying, or the mail here in Toronto, that Tumblety said that he was in constantly in dread of sudden death because of his kidney and heart disease. So there's the kidney, the heart, and the uterus. He's the only suspect connected to almost all three of those. Besides the organs, there was just another... There was one inanimate object taken from the Ripper victims. Does anyone know what that was? No. Oh, well, that was kind of animate. (laughs) Something inanimate. I know. What is
2: it? It was rings.
5: There you go. a wedding ring and a keeper ring. And so, here it is, a wedding ring and a keeper ring. And the the question was, is why did Jack the Ripper... This has nothing to do with D right now. Why did Jack the Ripper take those? They know he, uh, they, the eyewitnesses said that she had those rings on, and then there were bruises on there, so you could see that Jack Ripper took those. The idea was maybe Jack Ripper was kind of faking that he was stealing some stuff from this woman. That's why he was doing it. But none of the other victims had anything stolen. Well, when Francis Tumpley died, on his personal possession, he had all these expensive diamonds and his gold that he usually had in his cash. And what else did he have? Two cheap imitation rings. So, were they the same? Holy crap. I mean, we have re- reports of Tumble Dee getting, he, he was always arrested with, because he was, uh, he was always prowling for young men on the streets. And he would get himself in trouble and arrested for this, for sodomy and things like this. And so they would, uh, report what he had in his pockets. And this was never in there. Well, there's a reason why Tumblety would have taken those if it was Tumbledee. Tumbledee is a habit uh, right here. Oh, and I'll kind of get to this in a second. The most often reported uh, reason why Jack the Ripper uh, or Scotland Yard uh, suspected Tumbledee was because of his unusual hatred of women. So, here's Little Child saying, but his feelings toward women were remarkable and bitter in the extreme. So, here's some more reports. He never. Here's a report here. He never failed to warn... His correspondence, Young Lions, against lewd women. So anytime uh, his kind of M.O. with young men was a lot of times he would hire them as kind of an assistant. And then within a month or so, then he would try to molest them. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, and he got in trouble. But Young Lions didn't like it, so he got, that didn't work well with him. But they three of them reported how Tumbley would warn him about women, and then in this case right here, he thought all women were imposters. And down here, this was a letter. Sir Henry Hall Kane was Tumblety's boyfriend, basically, 1875, 1876 time frame. And Hall Kane always kept his uh, everything. He collected all the letters. And he had some letters from Francis Tumblebee. Uh A man named Neil Story uh, has this in his books. And one of them talks about Tumblety is just kind of, he's always... Um, angry about something. In this case, um, he's talking about the Chinese, but their women were the most degraded prostitutes, or lower than that. They're all used to decoy youths of the most tender age, and so there's a couple reports showing that the reason, Tumuli didn't hate all women. He only hated women that could decoy young men from their intended lovers, men. So he hated, uh, the, uh, attracted women. So Tumbley even published his threat to young available women in his autobiography. Nobody saw this and kind of connected it, but he's get, had about five different autobiographies. And he was he was very much narcissistic. And his very first one he reported when he was in 1860 in St. John's Canada, Tumbley had a killing air. This is a poem that he's repeating. Tumbley had a killing air Though cure was his professional trade, rosy of cheek and gloss of hair, dangerous man to widow, widow or maid. Here it is, widow or maid, not all of them, just widow or maid, which would be anyone that would threaten him. And in this case, his threats against women in St. John was noticed actually, so he reported this. This is Tumbledy in his autobiography. There is a an article talking about Tumbledy when he was in St. John's and said that uh, let's see, after a while they, the more intelligent people got their eyes open to the fact that he was a charlatan and pretty, pretty soon afterwards stories began to go around about his indecorous treatment of some of his lady patients. And that happened that was 1860, 1875 in Liverpool. Notice the same thing. So the the reporters in Liverpool had no idea who Tumbley was. They didn't even know his name, because Tumbley wouldn't give his name out. But here's what they reported here. So, in this case, this she declined, whereupon he ordered her to get out, legs and all, or else he would kick her out. Other women, young and unmarried. It's amazing how the reporter said, specify what kind of women have fled in alarm from his premises, and say his language and conduct suggested danger. So, and then this one right here is when we finally see Believe connected to surgical knives. 1881, young man named Richard Norris, under sworn testimony, he he worked for the New Orleans Police Department for decades, and so he had uh, lots of awards. But when he was 1881, he admitted he was 19 years old. He was watched, he was in the St. Charles Theater and Tumbley sat next to him and asked, asked if he would write a letter for him. And basically was, he knew that Tumbley was going to ask him for sexual favors, for money. And Norris admitted that he did that sometimes when he was younger. Although in 1895 he was married and had children at at the time. He had to admit to the judge and under oath, under oath that he did this. This was illegal and he works for the New Orleans Police Department. So, in this case, he talks about uh, when he went up to the the room of Tumbledees, Tumbledee had this travel chest. And 1880s, by the way, half the year, Tumbledee would be in London. So between 1880 and 1888, he was in London. Pretty much, sometimes it said biannually. So, here it is. Norris says that then there was a sort of tray in the trunk, and there were all sorts of large knives in there, surgical instruments. So, soon here, Tumbly is going to make advances on them, but he's looking at surgical instruments. And what happens is, Donald Rumbleau, one of the people that Brian was talking about, he was talking about Jack the Ripper likely had a surgical knife, one of those listed knives, that they used in the Houston Civil War. And then, here's what Norris said. There were large knives in the trunk, and then he came over to me and felt my pulse and felt my legs. I was smoking a cigarette at the time, and he said, throw that away, and he handed me a cigar. And we know tons of these smoked cigars, thanks to Brian. Because sometimes we were a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> saying that he, uh, it was bad to smoke cigarettes. He said the trouble with young men are those cigarettes and those confounded streetwalkers. He said if he had his way, they would all be disemboweled. This happened in 1881. The Ripper murders were 1888. It is the... Here it is. Francis Tumpley is one of the key suspects. It's not just like anybody that said a Ripper-like thing. Here's this guy. Here's three Scotland air detectives took him seriously at the peak of the murders. And he said this. Also, 1903 is when Tumbley died, and he was in St. Louis, and he had a will. And so that will was, he only uh, bequeathed about a third of his, his money. He had, in today's value, about $3 million. But then he bequeathed only to a portion of his relatives, or his nieces and nephews, no siblings were alive at the time. Actually, a sister, but then she passed away soon after. But in this case, so she, he would give it Mary Fitzsimmons ten thousand uh, of, which is thousands of dollars in today's value, and the two brothers, Michael and Charles, zip nothing. He just screwed everybody. And in this case, so what happened was, is the other family members sued. The uh, the will saying that Tumblety was not of sound mind and body, therefore the will is null and void. That's what they were trying to do. So it's a five year battle. So it was it was a compromise at the end. But what happened was is they realized two years earlier, Tumblety actually had a, a will in Baltimore. Now a lot of people thought that that was just a fake. One of the reasons why they were claiming as a fake is because under here he bequeathed today's value of $27,000, to uh, the Baltimore Home for Fallen Women. When you look that up, it was specifically for prostitutes. Tumbley hated prostitutes. So why is he trying to give money to them? Well, the answer is not because he was feeling guilty. Some people thought this. This guy was a psychopath. I mean, that's one of the things that you look at throughout his life. He had lacked remorse. There's, If I can get to him, there's a bunch of stories about it how he lacked remorse. What he was doing was he was greasing skids. He was Catholic. And back then, like many, even though it's it's not correct uh, how the Catholics believe it, but what he thought was he's going to earn his way to heaven. So he's going to basically give that money so he can kind of like, you know, get an edge on it. So... And again, attempted to earn his way to heaven because of sins he had committed in the past. So they would be like sins, something to that effect. So, um, I mean, I could go on for hours on fitting personality profile. One of the differences I found out, too, was most people thought that Jack the Ripper was a sadosexual serial killer, as in because they were uh, prostitutes. But two experts, Professor Brent Turvey and uh, a, a, a Dr. Barrett, neither... Have a dog in the fight. they just decided to look at the ripper victims and see what they saw. They did not see sadosexual. They did not see what they and they did what they saw was anger retaliatory and reassurance oriented behavior <coughs> which is that's why you put something on display some deep inadequacy in their in the past. but he saw that that matches identically to Francis Tumbley. nobody else. So, but,
2: now this is where, uh, the next slide. <laughs> this is, this is the moment that anybody who doesn't want to see the nasty, gory, bloody mess. <laughs> I,
5: don't, I,
2: don't, I don't say I would leave because I'd say close your eyes. Or you can just close your eyes if you want, but, uh. The next, uh, no, you can uh, you can control that. I don't even like looking at this, and
5: I've been seeing it for 30 years. Okay, ready? Eyes closed. Now these are
4: actually two of the victims that they have photographs
5: of. One is Catherine Edos here. She's on a meat hook right here, and then uh, and she. Oh, she comes in just for the nasty
3: (laughs) part.
5: And then this is Mary Kelly, Uh, Captain Nice and kind of hard. Yeah, we didn't zoom in on that one. So I mean, it is completely evisceration. and. and i got to tell you what it looks like, this, both of these victims. Uh, there was an anatomical Venus at the time uh, in a lot of uh, dime museums. Uh, within a half hour, half uh, a mile from Tom Lee's home in New York City, five museums had these anatomical Venuses that looked just like that. And the Venus, the goddess
6: Venus, is the goddess of physical heterosexual love. Tumbley would have hated it. This was
5: the, the goddess being mutilated. So what happened in January 1888? Again, 1888, the New York City Police Department ripped those things apart. They took them out. So uh, kind of an interesting connection there as well.
2: And the uh, the Mary Kelly, if you go back, is completely opened up. Um, her entire abdomen, all of her organs and intestines are removed. Her face, which luckily we did not zoom in on, is hacked beyond recognition. You can't even tell it's a face. It actually looks like a melted wax figure here, a close-up look. This is also the one murder that we know he used more than one weapon on. Um, Her thigh was hit with a hatchet after it was skinned. and You can actually see the hatchet mark on the bone. Her organs were removed and placed around the room. Some on the table next to her, some under her pillow, some under her arm. It was just under her head. It was, um, it was a pretty brutal killing. I- I'm one of those people that Mike mentioned earlier that does not believe Mary Kelly was a Ripper victim. Um, I think whoever did that to Mary Kelly knew who she was. That seemed a lot more, especially the damage to the face seemed a lot more personal than someone like, uh, Francis Tumblety or Jack the Ripper. But the possibility is, one of the arguments, like you said, people say Tumblety was in prison at the time. Well, no. Mike discovered he was not actually in prison at the time. He was there, and he could have done it if it was Jack.
6: Of course, Tumblety had multiple surgical implements in a travel chest. In a half a year, we'd be in London in that same travel
1: chest. So, of course, he had them. <laughs> Ryan, I, I've got a question. Yeah, I was yeah. going to
2: say, we're going to open up to questions now. Um, questions like that? for me? You
1: like that? I get, so questions
2: for the, me yeah. uh, about the general case, or Mike about the general case? Anything about Francis Tumblety? My, my
1: question is about the Mary Kelly victim. Uh, yes. Victim, oftentimes when there's so much um, trauma to the body, that indicates some knowledge between the victim and the aggressor. Yes. At least been up 32 years. So, was there anybody in her life that was
2: a suspect in this? Uh, th- there was, and a lot of people do not believe he was a suspect. To me, he seems the most likely. His name was Joseph Arnett. He, he lived with Mary at uh, Femmler's Court in this one little room. Uh, they would fight constantly, notoriously fought. One of the reasons they fought, they believe, was because he could not stand the fact that she would prostitute herself. While he was trying to earn the living. And Mary liked to drink. So when Mary didn't have money, Mary would go out and and prostitute herself. And uh, they had a really nasty fight just before that. He had left. He stormed out. She was bringing other prostitutes home with her. He says, I'm done. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. He slams the door, leaves. And then this happens. To me... I'm on the case then, he's the one I'm going after first. Now, the other thing is that
6: uh, on the flip side, if it was Jack the Ripper, this is the only victim that was indoors, and now the difference between MO and offensive signature, MO would be what you're doing to get the task done,
5: as in cutting the throat deeply, cutting the throat deeply would be stopping the heart, so when you eviscerate, you don't get splattered all over. Offender's well, signature was based on, you know, let's say you're. it was a huge hatred of women, you are attacking that part, more of that signature. And if you look at it that way, Mary Kelly would have been the only one that he had hours with, that he could actualize his entire uh, uh, um, plan, agenda. The other ones were within seconds, minutes, at best. Yeah. Yeah, what's your...
6: Uh, um, you didn't
5: mention why you think you're to a your candidate or had or intense feelings. What's the what's the hypotheses around that? Well, there's uh, a few of them. One was we found out this year that he was a hermaphrodite. Yeah, big right. shocker, how and that shocked know? the heck out of everybody. How, how does that? Well, what happened about? was is in the when uh, a guy from St. Louis contacted me to find he wanted to he want, he wants to break into the films. And he, uh, he wanted to do a, a short film for his graduate class on Francis Tumbley. So he contacted me and asked what should he do. And I said, well, if anybody knows anything about Francis Tumbley and has the goods on, it's those relatives. So what you need to do is find those, uh, de- depositions, those testimonies from those relatives, especially a couple of them that, um, uh, Michael Fitzsimmons, especially, and see what they said. Well, then that's what we found. And what happened was is the undertaker talked about this. You know, actually, actually had a micropenis. And then the, the uh, attorney in Baltimore, uh, a Robert um, Simmons, said that uh, he saw this. And he, there was rumor that he was a hermaphrodite. So he straight out asked him. Are you, you know, neither man nor woman kind of thing? And also this Richard Norris said that he was a Maphrodite. So then the attorney said, you mean neither man nor woman? And he said, exactly. So could he have been just having maybe just a micropenis? They're all considered intersex conditions today. And what happened was in 1994, there was a long-term study that showed that that adolescents with these conditions... It was 39% of them had uh, severe psychopathology.
3: Not that they're all going to, you know, uh, serial killers. And and there's never been
2: one known
3: to be a serial killer. Right, but what's... Well, let's state that right now. Yeah, so
5: what happens is, though it causes extreme inadequacy, especially um, me being raised Catholic as well, is that he cannot consummate consummate any marriage back then. There Especially coming from... um, he was 17 when he came over at the peak of the Data Famine, so he saw the mass starvation at the time. And so he was he was probably gay at birth, but you could see also that the the men in the family were literate, the women, the sisters were not. So there was a, a, quite a, you know, already a male-dominated kind of, kind of the, the Tumbley clan as well. But there was that, there were reports that he hated women even when he was a uh, teenager, and probably because now he used to go the weird thing after Kim comes back from the uh, eighteen eighty eight after his last autobiography he hangs out full time at night in the slums where the the uh, the prostitutes collect who he thinks should be for him. So he sees it firsthand, those people. Those are the ones that are the biggest threat. So probably it was a lifetime thing.
2: And again, because, that, especially for the podcast, I want to stress that there is no known serial killers that were intersex, hermaphrodites. We're not claiming. Except Tumbleton. Except Tumbleton. <laughs> <laughs> we're not claiming that if you are intersex, you're a serial killer. Um, the other thing about these documents, and the reason that no one's seen these before, because no one ever thought to look about his contested will. All the research that was done on him was all the cities. He looked at in and his arrest records. Everyone went after court records, arrest records. Mike told this guy, Dude, they contested his will there. Go look into that. These files hadn't been touched since 1903. Or 1908, I think. 1908? They were never open. They were still, he said, uh, when they got to the archives, they were still covered in coal dust from when the buildings were heated with coal. So this is all information that no one has ever reported, no one has ever seen until we got it. And the interesting thing is he sent us these documents. He was literally taking pictures with his iPhone and sending them to Mike. And Mike was sending them to me. And we'd be on the phone every night going, this is amazing, this is incredible. He has no idea what he has here.
5: (laughs) It's a a psychological profile for the last 20 years. What they wanted to do was, uh, they wanted to show that... Was tumbling, Did he go insane the last couple of years before in 1903? They did not care about the Ripper murders. They did not care that he was a hermaphrodite. They did not care uh, that
6: he was gay because there are some people that are thinking, well, they're focusing on that because back then they thought that was insanity. Therefore, that's why they were focusing, on, and they paid all these people off. Well, there there's 47 sworn testimonies, and what they show was uh,
5: most of them were about that last couple of years. But they had a lot to show in the last 20 years, from 1881 to 1903, to show that his pattern would change. Well, he was weird
4: from the beginning. <laughs> so he was just, freak. I mean, I mean, there was a neighbor, a lady, and saw him in Rochester,
5: 1895, in uh, one of the dark streets, uh, you
6: know, like alleyways, just sitting there, quiet. She walked by and. I
2: mean, that's wow. how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is also a guy that, uh, throughout most of his life, was a peacock. I mean, this is a guy who wrote several biographies about himself. He dressed in fake military uniforms. He would jump into parades. Um, he went next to to Lincoln. next to Lincoln at a Lincoln parade, and uh, we didn't even mention that he was actually arrested as part of the Lincoln conspiracy. Well, that's a long story. Long story. <laughs> um. He always wanted to be known. There were advertisements in all the papers everywhere he went. And then in the last 20 years of his life, everything changed. He wanted to be anonymous. Um, something changed in this guy. Completely different. Completely, different. Completely. Yes?
3: Uh, two quick questions. One, I believe something, something was burned in uh, Mary Jane Kelly's fireplace. Wasn't there? I don't know if it was a body part or if it was paper's. There's a, there's Part a, of a hat, too. There was
5: some uh, clothing <laughs> as well that was burned, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's as far as I know.
3: What, okay, what I don't it? know if you found any specific relevance for what was burned, because I know there's a theory that it was evidence or something, but it could have been her roommate or boyfriend hiding something. Like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the other question I had is, if somebody had the, the money that he had, so he would carry money in one pocket and jewels and things, why did he spend so much time in Whitechapel, which was just hell? I mean,
5: but he I always, but when we found out right from the beginning, even in, uh, when he was younger, he spent his nights in the slums. And even Richard Norris goes, why do you do that? And the reason was because of his passion. He, w- he was hypersexual. And he would, he would, every night, he would go walk those slums. And that's one of the things that they were weird. It was just so weird about. He was always salons. and so and he admitted two things. One is that uh, uh, January eighteen eighty nine, he admitted to a New York World reporter that he was in the Whitechapel district during the during the, um, the murders. But also, Young Norris asked him in eighteen eighty nine, and he said that Tumulty said that yes, he was there as well. But he—that's where he would hang out.
2: Yeah, it wasn't just in London. It was in uh, D.C. He was picked up in the uh, in the red light district, uh, New Orleans. Um, there's he to Mexico, Mexico he, he would head. go. Yeah. He now he associated with all the West End people of London. He would brag about his relationship with Hulk Kane and Braun Stoker, and he hung out with, with with Booth when Booth was the big actor Pre-18 in America. 1880,
4: 1880,
2: 1880.
6: But it was all about his motive. Was all about money making. Three eighteen eighty. anything he did, and he's uh, because he had two things, which you can see, he had narcissistic personality disorder, and he had no friend ever, and so this antisocial personality disorder you can see where the began. and so uh, which those are two personality disorders we talk about certain serial killers. Yeah, I guess my question is, uh, uh, bringing it into modern technology is slashing blood spatters. these gentlemen have to be? buying new suits every time he killed somebody. <laughs> I mean, he's in, he's in a... Tumbley was well, known to have no five suits line. on a day. What's that? Dumbledore was known to wear five oh, suits on okay. okay. a day. You know, like, there's no evidence of, like, a... You know,
4: car. Well, yeah. That's the sure. nice sure. thing about having those, you know, the... Oh, yeah. Overcutting.
6: But there would have been the most bad... And, for and and the, well, that report I just yeah, showed you, that the father of Gold's in the, the uh, throat. Yeah,
2: there's a... Now, the other thing is, you've got to remember, these crimes were done in the east end of London where all hours of the night, people were going to work in slaughterhouses and fish markets. And it was very common to see people in blood splattered clothes. So it wouldn't look out of the ordinary. If you saw someone walking down the street at 3 in the morning covered in blood, it's like, you oh, you're just leaving the butcher shop. You know? Like
6: this that, right here. This man's face and I was covered
1: with blood splashes. Yeah. So even if you were covered in blood, the period dress of the wore cloaks and they wore Macintoshes, the big heavy sort of uh, overcoat with a short cape that went over the shoulders and whatever. You took that off, killed somebody, you covered yourself. You Put it right had back on. Head to toe pretty much. And it was dark. Yeah, yeah. It was dark. You had those, those NASA so My other, my other uh, question is, you mentioned uh being a psychopath. Psychopathy is a heritable trait. Were there ever any other members of this family that were diagnosed as being psychopaths? Well, there's, uh, there are a couple things. One is that, and I
6: couldn't
5: very well have had sociopaths as well. Okay. Because sociopath the difference, you know, psychopathy and sociopath, sociopathy would be psychopaths, just like you said, would be kind of like they're born that way. Yet with serial killers, then there is still child abuse. But then sociopath would be always, there was child abuse that really. Just, You know, did you win? And here's Tumbley at age 17, comes to America. 1847, that was when both the spring and the fall crops went in Ireland. I mean, a million people died there, starving. And so they were tenant farmers. And that's the other thing that we found out, is I discovered Francis Tumbley's family in Ireland. That's one of the things people were looking for. The thing was, as Francis Tumbley was born in 1830, nobody decided to look earlier. They were always looking later and there was nothing no records. 1821 they found his family and they were tenant farmers in the county Meade. And then these latest uh reports showed that the uh the nephew um Michael Finn Simmons says that Tumblee they he was born in Meade, County Meade, and Tumbledy would uh, at ten years old took him, who's five, to uh the the, the uh, school. Again, it was only you know, men that were going to school at the time. How old would he have been in that era? You was born in 1930. 1930, 1830. 1830. This so is 1888. Right, so he's 58, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 55. All yeah, yeah I'm a 54 year old, but I can guarantee you, I can still do anything like that. So what happened was, but that's a good point also because. Most people were still thinking that Jack the Ripper was sadosexual. What happens is, when you look at that profile, that's a younger man, it tends to be. But he wasn't sadosexual. I always tell people, if Jack the Ripper was sadosexual, Francis Tumley didn't do it. Right. But the experts that have no dog in the fight said they see anger retaliatory, and they see, and there was, especially the narcissistic personality disorder where there's it's an impulse, something, something, uh, foot that switch. True. And that January eighteen eighty eight is when he said he was in constant dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. And then, uh, and, and then, so, but there's also some stuff about this. Uh, uh, we don't have enough time about the elixir stuff, but it's in the, in the book. But there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on. Yes. What did he do to become so wealthy? He was. It was basically his Indian herb doctor business. When he was, well, 1847, 1850, when he was 20 years old, he started into the alternative business with, he was just an office boy for two doctors. One was that French disease doctor, but then this R.J. Lyons Indian herb doctor came into town and was just charismatic, and he followed him. And then next thing you know, that was uh, around 1850, 1856, Tumbley is in London, Canada, as a full-fledged Indian herb doctor, and then kind MD, so he could claim to was both.
6: So
1: if had be, a, oh, oh, sorry, if he was uh, working on syphilis at the time he probably was exposed to mercury, which caused madness
5: Well, the allopathic medicine at the time still uh, was given mercury, regular medicine, and they were still bloodletting. So that was one of the things that he actually uh, advertised against was mercury because he was going against the normal medical doctors. So... Is associated
6: with like, a best friend, somebody he, a confidant, he, he looked up to? Never. Looked up to well, not that he looked
2: up to. The closest we would have would be Norris, um, the guy who gave the testimony about the surgical knives, because we know his relationship with Norris lasted several years. Twenty. 20, 20, 20 years. years. Uh, every Mardi Gras, he would
6: mm-hmm. Now yep. Norris got married within that time, so but every Mardi Gras, it was either a day or a few days of or two
2: months. And He's the one who... He, he admitted... He admitted to having um, relations with him when he was 19. He testified about the knives. He was associated with him for 20 years. Even
5: Norris... Tom, Norris said that Tumbley never talked about his family. And he never and did. And he yeah. had two brothers. Right? No, Tumbley had... He was an 11th child. And mostly sisters, oldest sister all the way down, but two two brothers that were kind of on the younger side as well. But Lawrence was the oldest brother that never married, and one of the things that uh, a descendant of the Tumblebee clan said that there was homosexuality in their family
2: line, well, Frank Tumblebee's one. And the interesting thing about that is, on that uh, giant tombstone in Rochester, the only family members buried there are the brother Lawrence, himself, and his parents. Is that his reasoning to move to
6: Rochester because his brothers were there? Uh, like, why did he pick, he came from England, and he couldn't go to Canada. The answer, Rochester. the short answer is yes. Okay. But the Tumble the clan was in Rochester, Rochester. also in right. London, Canada, Toronto, and then you can see this, and then the sister was actually in New York City, met them. This was just discovered to oh, okay. the book.
3: Not this one. (laughs) (laughs) The next one. Future reading. Even if uh, Mary Kelly may or may not have been a Ripper victim, I think it was Mm -hmm. Edo's one of the other four, and Kelly had their um, intestines removed. And I think that they were purposely placed by the left shoulder or by the arm. Uh, Almost the impression I had was that they were kind of gently placed there. They They were gently placed, yeah. Which uh, doesn't seem to be that that sadistic. It seems more of a, I don't
2: know. Flash. Well, there's lose. two. There's a couple theories on that. One of the theories is is that they were done in a, in a ritualistic Masonic symbol. Um, I don't buy for a second. The other thing is he's going for a certain organ. He's got to get to it quick. He's got two minutes in the dark. He's just taking those intestines and putting them back. And there they are.
6: Adams was one of those. It was within minutes that control constipation. So it had to been that fast.
2: Yeah, within 10 minutes, they patrol, and within 10 minutes, they sure, find the body. The body you was know, you
6: know. still steaming. Right. So, and then, um, but right, especially when he, if he was after something. That's what I talked about as Tumlee. He was looking for it. Now, Tumlee died, uh, and, the, and the surgeon said that the old days they used to call it White's disease, but it was nephritis, you know, kidney disease. Uh, Tumlee had that.
2: And remember, he wasn't called Jack the Gentle uh, Surgeon. It was Jack the Ripper. He was ripping these people apart. Very quickly, um, if he was going for something specifically, he had to get at it as fast as he could. And what are you going to do with the organs? You just throw them back. Now, is any of his, uh, his hardware
6: or his knives anywhere?
5: Well, if you want to help me research, here's what happens. So. Uh, what we found out is that, uh, sworn testimony, we found out that Mary Fitzsimmons, who lived in Rochester, Plymouth Avenue, was the place that he would uh, store stuff. And so that family kind of fizzled out, though. So uh, we can't find it. Yeah. So, but if it would have been, it would have been Rochester, because that's where he fell out and he died in St. Louis, so there could have been things there.
2: He spent a lot of time in New Orleans. There could have been things there. Sure. Um, more than likely, if anything exists, it's in Rochester. Right. Does this, this your
6: work, does it elevate Tumble team in your mind to the lead suspect? I know this is, like you said in the beginning, this is going against <coughs> a lot of the conventional wisdom over the last few decades, right. is he elevated now to the lead suspect.
2: We're talk about
6: top three.
2: Definitely. Top yeah. three. But, yeah. Yeah. but from my standpoint, I'll tell you right now, when I met Mike, um, we found out we were going to a conference, a Jack River conference, and we found out we both lived in the same city. So I reached out and I said, hey, we should meet and have a drink, cup of coffee, so at least we'll know someone in Baltimore if the conference sucks and we met we sat down he started telling me about the Tumblety research he was doing and he saw me roll my eyes and i actually told him i wrote Tumblety off years ago um here's why and he goes okay well here's why you should write. and that we started talking and i think we were there for several hours in that bar talking about disemboweling process and scaring the hell out of people <laughs> and um i said mike said to me at that conversation look if any, if any time someone proves to proves that Jack was a, a, a sexual sadist, right. Tumulty's not it, done. Right. It's the first researcher I ever met who said, prove me wrong and I'll admit it. Mm-hmm. Everybody else just doubles down on me. So then I said, okay, I'll, I'll work with this guy. Yeah. And then I started doing some of this research. And then with the St. Louis discoveries, we were going through all this stuff. And Tumblety went from me to being completely off the radar, completely ignored. To the point I'm at now, I'm not saying he was Jack the Ripper, but I'm saying an awful lot of people in the police at the time thought he was. There's a good reason why they thought he was. He needs to be taken
4: seriously and looked at much more seriously as a suspect. And he's gone to probably the top two on my list of who the Ripper could be. And there was no of known people. No rippings in the Rochester area. Well, speaking of that, that was when I, uh, when I was
5: flown to Dublin To be filmed, the uh, person is uh, Pat Spain, who is the host. a biologist, a charismatic guy, you can see why they're doing it. So he just got back from the Congo and they were in Sumatra doing stuff. They wanted to do, they're doing legends everywhere, and they wanted to do Jack the Ripper. And so he heard my Ripper cast and he talked to that Stuart Evans before, and uh, I told them, I need you to try to challenge me as much as you can. And so by the end of that, discussion, he was absolutely convinced and then he said, I just have one question it was your question. Were there any murders in the United States? And the first thing that the FBI says, the biggest misconception about serial killers is they continue to kill. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But if they have a, let's say, sadosexual, like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, they have an impulse. Absolutely, that impulse is going to continue. Tumultee totally didn't have an impulse. He just had a, a hatred and a switch went. So there would have been no reason for him to continue. But I always talk about uh, years. Uh, we had eight. two years later, there was this Kerry Brown that was murdered in New York City, very Ripper-like. And so a lot uh, you know, they were taken seriously back then. Oh, and where was Tumultee at that time? He lived a half mile from there. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, and then... Uh, so then, um, and then when the H.H. H. Holmes show on the History Channel talks, they're talking about all these other people around the United States that look like they're river victims, and of course, that was more TV stuff. But we found out that Tumbledee, 1880, visited Mexico. One of the reasons is uh, one of the ports was a, uh, kind of a harbor, lots of uh, homosexual activity. But that was a third world country way back then. I bet there could be anything that happened back then. And then even in Texas, uh, a few years before the Ripper Murders, there was a Ripper Lakes kind of situation. But for me, I would say he didn't, he would stop. You know, and they talk about angry retaliatory as they'll stop because they almost got caught. And so this is Dr. Turner talking.
2: Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, he also got pretty scared um, when he was locked up in London before he fled. And he fled, he didn't just leave to get away from a misdemeanor charge. He went in a back road. He went a different way. He got the hell out of Dodge. That might have been enough to scare him off of doing this. If he was, if it was Tumblety, and it was angering yeah. him, and yeah. that's the yeah. if. You have
6: nowhere else to hide. Could go back to
2: Canada. No. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions?
6: And when's the new book coming out? I guess, uh, uh, November to February. Well, so yeah. What yeah, yeah. <laughs> happens is the publisher. Knows darn well. I purposely let the publisher know that March is when the Legend Hunters are going to show their episode, and it was kind of cool because they, uh, the director was there, and they of all their shows, they were most
5: excited about this one. And I was really in that lecture; it was fun. Uh, but
2: because they sent
5: a good-looking one. Yeah. <laughs> so then, what happened is, is the uh, uh, so they said that it starts in March, and so that's. The yeah, yeah. So, my publisher knows that. So, I mean, yeah. that's national. Where is right. it going to be distributed? Oh, it's usually uh, Barnes & Noble? No. Uh, my publisher hates that's Barnes and Noble. So my publisher hates oh, Barnes There's a battle. So I mean, here's the one. I have books book signing. You can go to Barnes & Noble and he says, nope.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Amazon, you'll be able to get the books through Amazon.com. You can get the ones that he has out now on Amazon. Sure. Which is where most people do their book shopping now. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Any other questions? Ripper related? Tumblety related? <laughs> I have one just last question.
6: What got you in? Why are you doing this? For me? Yeah.
5: Uh, what happened was in uh, 2009, my first book, "Searching for Truth," the "Broken Flashlight." Uh, Thirty years of research on a completely different subject. Available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> the. Uh, I was waiting for Paulist Press to get off their duck because they had accepted it. Well, that's when the economy went under. And uh, so then they got rid of niche books, including mine. But I was waiting for them. So I'm biting at the bit, and then I'm on watching TV, and I see Stuart Evans on a show called... I uh, think it was... Time uh, Quest. Something Quest. Uh, Mystery Quest. Mystery Quest episodes, if you remember that. In 2009, and here's the Stuart Evans talking about a... Serious Jack the Ripper suspect buried in Rochester, New York. So I thought Rochester, that's cool. So then I, 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 I'm a genealogist too, that family history, and I, I found out where he was buried. So I, I brought my brother-in-law with me, and we videotaped us. And all I did back then, you watch it. There's been over eleven thousand hits on this thing, but I'm just parroting what Stuart Evans said. I I know nothing about Jack the Ripper, but it looks good, you know, because I'm I'm just doing this. But then later on, we did another one. Where now there's a lot, a lot of stuff you know about it. But like, uh, so it was because of, uh, you know, most people go into the Jack Turbo thing to see who's, you know, I, nobody can find Jack Oh, well, It's my turn. And I'm gonna find him in the end of the world. I mean, and it, well, you know, it's, a, it's historical. DNA stuff, if you hear about DNA stuff, there's a problem with that. So, uh, but, oh, DNA. You know, but the, so the, uh, so to find them, that's going to be tough. But what happened was, my goal was, I'm going to start with Tumbledee. Then I'm going to go to Druid, because I was interested in Druid too. So but I, I wanted to be convinced it wasn't Tumbledee first. And when I was looking at all the stuff against Tumbledee, and there was a lot, I thought it was crap. I thought Stuart Evans was right. And, and I mean, some of the bizarre reasons why tum, there was this anti-Tumblebee thing going on, and it was convincing everybody. I thought, What's going on here? So I, you know, jumped in and then did my my style of research, which really helped out. And then, uh, so, but uh, that's kind of what happened. And then uh, I'm still going. We found more. And then now we're finding more in Canada. We're going to find more in Chicago. I mean, this guy was everywhere. I mean, there was more stuff he found on this guy. And to find out that he was a prime suspect, a key suspect that said, Ripper like stuff. Oh, that. <laughs> I mean, that... Paul Begg said when my book was Head and Shoulders Above the Rest. We didn't know about that yet. I mean, he just went to the top three. Uh, and then when Paul Begg says, everybody follows.
3: He loves Paul Begg.
2: Paul's my hero. <laughs> Hi, Paul.
3: Paul will be listening to this too. So, Hi, but, Paul.
5: so but there are still more. Then um, and so that's the next one's getting published with uh, gonna talk about that basically that personality profile with forty seven sworn testimonies and depositions. And there's differences. One person has a different one and a different reason. There's reasons for all that stuff. And so I like to get into
2: those details because I think it's important. Now, uh, there's no more questions. Mike does have two of his books here uh, that he will be signing. So you can come over. There's more than two though. More than two, two different books. Uh, you can come over, meet the author, uh, get him to sign a book picture with them if you want. I mean, I've done it. There's evidence of it, so.
4: Um,
2: if any, no one else has any questions, thank you for listening, and here's Kevin. All right. <laughs> so ladies and
1: gentlemen, the <laughs> gentleman my I hope you had a good uh, time tonight. This was a fantastic, I always say, a dark and stormy night. Yes, yes. Just yeah. what we had uh, the be day mm-hmm. before Halloween. What an interesting uh, uh, journey this has been, uh, I think, for a lot of us, um, being in here with, you know, some people obviously had a high level of knowledge on this, other people, first time we've ever really looked at the case, but uh, it was fantastic to be a huge you know, really, for, uh, for Brian and Mike. <laughs> is open, the smoking lamp is lit, uh, cocktails and cigars for those who uh, are so inclined, and uh, we've got the book signing
0: here, and there's no reason that we can't con- continue uh, the evening uh, just in a more conversational passions. So, thanks so much we'll for all of you. And that was Michael Hawley and Brian Young at the Crow Club in Buffalo, New York with Jack the Ripper in Western New York. I'd like to thank Mike and Brian as well as the members of the Crow Club for allowing us into their special Halloween event to hear this presentation. I hope you all enjoyed it. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you will find over 100 guest speaker talks, conference presentations, author interviews, and roundtable discussions all about the Whitechapel murders in Victorian and Edwardian East End History and Crime. For any questions or comments on the podcasts we release, you can contact us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for RipperCast. And I would like to thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.